Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Welcome to a summer edition radio show. Jeff, welcome to the show. What's happening? You know, I figured we've done so many guest interviews and we were getting a lot of feedback where listeners were pining to get Jeff back on the show. So As they should have been. So we thought we'd start to mix up a few Q&As. We might even start doing two weeks. We'll see. Got a little travel coming up. Going to Colorado and Wyoming to see the eclipse. Very nice. Do you know there's an eclipse coming? This was, uh, Arnott was talking about that, right? Yeah. So t- t- took his advice. Mainly got to go see the family in Colorado, but we also have family up in Wyoming. So we're going to pop up there and, and get to see the unadulterated 100% eclipse. You're only going to get about half here. Maybe you should come join. What time you is ever it been supposed to, Wyoming? to be kicking in? I think it's midday. I have no idea, though. Okay. You ever been to Wyoming? Uh, years ago, Jackson Hole. Summer or winter? Summer. I would um, love to ski there. There's no way you'd go down Corbett's Kool- Corbett's Kalur, yeah. yeah. Ah. Well, me neither. I've so, seen it. No, well, just so listeners can understand, Meb and I ski from time to time, and uh, you went off I some, mostly wait for you. You went off some ledge and told me the landing was fine, and I went flying over, and I remember trying to do some trick, and I about killed myself on the landing because it was anything but fine. It was all a mogul field down there. Actually, you didn't was, even jump it. It was you, fine. It was you fine just for skied me. down. No, I remember now. You actually didn't jump it. You skied around the side. Typical conservative, maybe, passive. Maybe just, if you were using your 1980s purple Rosignols, you would have landed it. I look great. These these new new old, these new fangled skis don't work for you. What parabolics? There you go. You learned on the on the big cardboard ones. What are we talking about today? What do you know? Back up first. You mentioned family a minute ago. Give us the update on Tony Huge and everything else from your end. Things have gotten a lot easier. The first week of being a, a new father was kind of dark. Everything is wonderful now. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's a lot of fun. He's smiling, doing all the baby things he's doing. However, my brother, who I love dearly, just showed up with his, his three children. And, and it's been about one day. They're like two to ten. I'm just exhausted. We got a whole yeah. week to go. And then it's like an hour of just managing them. It's like, oh man, I I I am huge. I have even more and more impressed every day of parents of large families. It is chaos. I have three nephews under the age of 10, and yeah. I made the big mistake of buying them these hard plastic swords for Christmas. <laughs> and I bought myself one so we could battle. And my, you know, shins and, and knuckles. No, it's not a mistake for you because you can be fun uncle and leave. Oh yeah, your yeah. brother and family probably hates you forever. This year, you should show up with like a rubber band gun or something <laughs> that's definitely going to cause tears and meltdowns. All right, uh, yeah, so that's good. Um, we just put out our new book, you know, the the best investment writing. So, listeners, if you haven't picked it up, it's really a lot of fun. It's thirty curated pieces from this past year. We hope that I think it'd be really fun to do it as an annual volume. So kind of like those those yearly, the best of science fiction writing, except they're 
investment from and it's from some of the best writers out there i mean the the jason's Zweig intro piece alone is so awesome mm-hmm. i think that's worth the price of admission anyway y'all pick up a copy you can get it on amazon let me know i'd love we'd love to hear what you think if you think it's great terrible things new to add the kindle edition everything is in color by the way which is pretty cool you don't rarely see that where they do the black and white hardcover kindle in color check it out let us know in the in the cover there's no book jacket it's like a material unknown to man. I've never felt as nice of a book cover. You guys, let me know what you think. Well, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I would think, too, uh, if you guys hearing this are familiar with some uh, great authors that you believe might be worthy of consideration for volume two uh, that we missed, let us know. We're always looking for great pieces. Yeah, so. we'll do a Q4. We'll do a crowdsource. Send us the single best th- thing you read in 2017. And that way, I'd like to see a lot more breadth of, you know, of writers. I mean, we got a lot of unknown and super well-known writers in this one. Everything from, you know, billion-dollar fund managers to journalists to everything in between, bloggers. So, yeah, we hopefully hopefully we uh volume 2 will be out in Q1. Cool. All right, let's jump in here. Um I was thinking today something you've recently done obviously is uh you opened up your calendar to uh some investors and to some RIAs uh offering them the chance to call in and basically just chat with you for 30 minutes or so. And I know from speaking with you over the last couple of weeks, there was a lot of commonality or some commonality in terms of what they're asking about and how they're seeing the markets and their concerns. Can you give us the uh, the high level about um, you know, what their thoughts were? That's probably representative of how a lot of listeners are seeing things. Yeah. So we call this office hours and podcast listeners, you wouldn't have heard about it unless you're on our email list. So join uh, through any of the websites. And we sent it out and I said, look, my summer's sort of slow. I'm a new dad. I got some time to kill during the day. And I just wanted to interact with clients, would-be clients, people, right? And so... By the way, how many hours did you... Well, so it was two weeks long. <laughs> and my intention was to do like a professor does, office hours this time over these two weeks. And I used this calendar scheduling app. And I meant for it to be from 10 to 2 every day. So around lunch to hang out, have four 30-minute conversations. Or no, that's eight. Anyway... I unintentionally left my calendar open from nine to four every day. So I did 10 to 12 calls a day for two weeks, back to back. And it was... Um, I so haven't if, seen Matt look this tired. So if time. you heard me by... I'm not a huge talker in the first place. So if you heard me... That's false. If you heard me by the final Thursday or Friday, I sounded like a frog. My voice just so gravelly. But it was awesome. So I talked to people... 30-minute calls and all walks of life. We talked to people from Russia, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Florida, (laughs) Oregon. Almost all the callers, there was like half the callers were from Oregon for some unknown reason, where it's like 110 degrees right now. Anyway, but it was about half individuals and half advisors or institutions. I would say about one-third of the calls were just talking about the Broncos or fishing or whatever's going on in the world. Two-thirds, you know, in our business opportunities, some of our podcast ideas, some of our million-dollar fintech ideas. Uh, but but two-thirds, there's the common themes of kind of what you alluded to at the beginning, which was what's going on in markets, what's going on in the world, how best do you think we can either implement some of your ideas or funds or offerings or concepts into our practice or uh, portfolio? And there was probably three or four, you know, kind of things that I'd say... I would always start it off, we talk, we'd just chat for a while, and then I'd say, look, what's under mine? And kind of just wanted to get a 
survey of what people were thinking, you know, and in the general just feedback, what it, what's sentiment, what's going on in the world. And in most people, there's there's kind of a couple takeaways. A, lo- a lot of people, I think, going back to if you remember our original conversation near the beginning of the year where we talked about the zero budget portfolio, a lot of people still have a, a ton of baggage in their portfolios. And there's a what's it called? The endowment effect where you value something higher that you currently own. You know, a lot of people have these legacy positions and for whatever reason, they treat them totally different than they if they had a full account of cash and just wanted to go allocate. So they their starting point is always, this is what I own now and I want to move to B. So I'm, I'm at A and I want to move to B. And I think it's really hard for people to say, well, let's exclude taxes considerations for a minute, but let's say you had a just broad portfolio where nothing was, you weren't going to generate a huge tax gain. But let's say you just had a bunch of junk in there. 20 mutual funds that you didn't know what to do with, you know, it's really hard for people to go from there because they treat what they own differently than what they want to own. And so we often just say, just clean house, liquidate it, and then focus on where you want to be. Anyway, so that that was a common theme, a lot of, a lot of baggage. Well, how much of that is uh, people not understanding their investments fully or the markets change? So what they bought X years ago that might have made sense then is no longer, you know, something that they want to hold versus it's just purely a behavioral bias. You know, they're basically just saying, I don't care. I now value this more, as you said, because the endowment effect. I, I think it relates a little bit more to my second point, which is that most people are still winging it. Okay. And just shooting from the hip. And I, I don't I should have asked this question in, in the next office hours. And by the way, we'll do this probably once a quarter from ten to two, not nine to four, but ten to two. And you know, the vast majority of people some did, but almost majority of them didn't have like a written, structured, rules-based plan. Most people say, well, I own some of this and I own some of that and I'm thinking about doing this and that. And it's the way most, almost my universal experience is the way almost everyone manages money, including advisors and institutions. They kind of just assimilate new information every day and just kind of roll with it, right? They don't have like a written investment plan that, and we think everyone should, that which you can then deviate from because once you have a reasonable investment plan and i I said this to almost every call we did i said look you know first of all let me say there's a lot of great ways to invest i said look i'm I'm happy to talk about trinity and all these other ideas that we have but there's plenty of good ways to invest i said you know this may be a scenario where you're happy to sit in cds and or you have your 10 dividend stocks that you've held for 20 years and that's that's your thing and you're comfortable with it i'm like i'm that's fine I'm happy to talk about the ways that I think are the best ways to invest, but let it be known, the most important thing is to find the investing strategy that's right for you. And a lot of people, I think, get stuck in this rut of age-based investment uh, strategies. So say, I'm a 20-year-old, I have to be aggressive because I have a long-term time horizon. But then you have a 20-year-old that hasn't studied market history or is super emotional and can't handle losing more than 10% of their investment account and so you put them, you know, an advisor then puts them 100% in stocks and they go down 50% and that person is scarred for 20 years. Like they're not going to invest. I had a lot of calls, by the way, where it was people that were aware of their behavioral issues. They're like, look, I'm my own worst enemy. I said, that's great. That's a huge finding. At least you know. But they would say, I was devastated by 08. I've never gotten back into investments since and I'm sitting on cash or whatever. And and that that was a common theme. And so going back to the age-based thing, I said, there's also 80 year olds that I talk to that say, look, I got 5 million bucks. I'm not going to spend it. 
I spend like 50 grand a year. So I would like to invest this intelligently, but also invest it. It's either going to, it's only going to one of three places. It's going to the government, it's going to your kids or some sort of foundation or charity, right? Like it's going to get dispersed. Mm -hmm. Can't take it with you. So as my mom always says, so, uh, but so they said, I would like to uh, invest fairly aggressively, but most, you know, kind of the old school, just age-based investment styles would say that you need to be conservative. You're old, you know, which, although if you go back to the Edelman podcast, 80 is no longer old. They may be living to 120 now, but yes. Tell me this. You mentioned uh, kind of the root of this was too many investors don't have a written investment plan. When I think of that, I wonder if investment plan, just that term, has a certain amount of ambiguity and or fear attached to it to the common investor because they're like, well, what does that mean? Do I need a three-page written outline? Do I need to be able to forecast what I'll do in every situation? Right now, can you give us maybe just three basic questions to ask yourself or three rules of thumb to come up with a basic investment plan to know what might work for you? Well, I, I don't even think it has to be written. I just think you need to have some sort of plan. All right. Well, and, then, but let me paint you to a corner. What are three questions to help you arrive at your own plan? So let, let me tell you what the conversation I would have with people. And then we'll, we'll see if we can figure out three questions from this. All right. Because I don't, I don't know that I had three <laughs> off the top of my head. I could come up with them. But so, but so the conversation would usually lead to, hey, Meb, all right, so here's what my current situation is. Here's my allocation. Or here's what my clients are doing. Can you tell me a little bit about the way you see the world and sort of this Trinity concept and et cetera? And so I say, look, again, there's lots of great ways to invest. And I say one great way to invest, what we call the starting point almost always is in what we call an investable benchmark is if you just went out and bought the world. If you just bought everything in the world, what would that percentage look like? And it's we call it the global market portfolio. And it's, you know, a big mix of U.S. stocks and foreign stocks and bonds and real estate and commodities, everything in between. You're going to be owning, you know, 50,000 plus securities around the world. You just bought everything. And it, it ends up roughly like half and half stocks and bonds. If you were to lump everything into one category, you know, corporate bonds is sort of a mix. Tips are a mix and everything in between. But in general, it's roughly a 50-50. And so we say, all right, that's the market cap portfolio starting point. That, that's kind of like the bar from which we start pointing. The beautiful thing about that today is you can invest in that for almost no cost or essentially very almost free. Why, right? is, that, why is that the bar? It seems like all you're really getting is global diversification. Why is that sort of the, the settings point? That, that's my default starting benchmark. Just okay. For Just me. Because you need something. For me. That's my starting benchmark right. because it's a great portfolio. It is. And it's low cost. You get uh, no home country bias. You get the market cap portfolio. If you were to just buy the world, it's the starting, starting point. So there's a lot of ways to do that. Obviously, we have an e one of the lowest cost ETFs in the industry that does this. But you know, if you were to buy a number of different global asset allocation funds that cost very little or the robo-advisors, this is what all the robo-advisors do. Buy and hold diversified portfolio. And I said, but the problem with that, there's a couple of problems. I said, the biggest challenge for that for people is drawdowns. And you go through a bear market like you did in 08, 09, 2000, 2003, and investors really struggle with drawdowns. And it's not just because the portfolio draws down and you lose 10, 20, 30, you know, like some endowments that are a little more aggressive, 50%. You know, a lot of people, their, their drawdowns were 50% in 08, 09. But it's also because it coincides with recessions, with people uh, losing their jobs, so a bad economy often, and tons of negative news flow. 
So all of this happens at the same time as you're having a bear market. So if bear markets are happening, you know, right, like like when times are good and economy's great and everyone's full employment, that's not the way it works. It all usually happens at once. So it's really hard to sit through those. And we'll ignore the the market cap differences right now. But so that that's the biggest challenge of the buy and hold. And then the minor differences are they're market cap weighted. So you could tilt towards value, you could tilt towards momentum. We talk about this in the Trinity Portfolio white paper. And I said, well, you know, if you've known me long enough, you know that my philosophy, one of the longest things that, that we do at Cambria is, you know, trend following at heart. And trend following is a great investment approach, but it's also hard to, to comply with. And it's hard for other reasons. It's hard because you often look different. So it may be underperforming when buy and hold is outperforming or when the S&P is ripping. And so it's hard emotionally to stick with that system because because your friends may be making money your friends may or your coworkers, everyone else is doing great so the whole trinity concept we said is the combination of the two it's a little holistic like a yin yang sort of combination and i said that's been the best way that if you look back at a decade of sort of research for us on holistically putting together buy and hold as a fundamental anchor you know, so you always have some tether to what's going on in the economy and the world, but also this trend following component that hopefully can give you concentrated exposure as well as some risk management if and when we may never have another bear market here, but if and when in the US we have another bear market. So that was kind of the summary starting point. And then a lot of people, we went off in, down 10,000 other tangents. Um, another comment um, until, you, until you let me know you have another question. Yeah, is yeah, that, yeah. Let me interrupt then if you got a second. Um, as I'm listening to this, I'm trying to think about how this would potentially uh, translate into the idea of a few common questions or whatnot to help listeners come up with their investment plan. And my mind's thinking, well, it kind of boils down to uh, an investor's personal preference in between uh, more risk and return, less risk return, that sort of thing. So it would slide between buy and hold versus active. But to what extent have you seen that investors, in a sense, delude themselves in a, in a market like right now? They're sitting there thinking, all right, well, I wouldn't mind ramping up my risk return, so I'm going to slide more towards active or whatever to, um, because I can handle a 30% drawdown. But then when it comes, people get scared, and you know every bit of logic they have in moments like this goes out the window, and then they're just fleeing the investment plan. So how do you kind of plan ahead for the, you know, the behaviors and the fears that invariably kick in? And, and one more, one of the biggest mistakes i think i mean the vast majority of the conversations i had almost everyone someone was had a question or stressing about something an investment and they see it as a binary choice so i know u.s stocks are expensive should i be in them or out i know that i've been out of the market since 08 09 should i get back in in almost every conversation it was either in or out no in between and i would often tell people i said look you know, my dad used to struggle with this. He's like, oh man, I own silver, but should I sell it or keep it? And I said, sell a quarter of it. Yeah, It's not as much fun. You're not going to be gambling. A lot of people, a lot of people want something to cheer for. They want a lottery ticket. So they either, they want the excitement or drama of investing. And, and that's not sensible. You know, that's not the really smart way to do it. So, so many people, I said, look, let's say you've been out since 09 and you want to start putting money in work. I said, why don't you dollar cost average in over the next five years? And you can always avoid the hindsight. I mean, the correct mathematical choice is almost always lump sum immediately because the portfolio has positive expected return. 
and we're not to the point yet where the where a portfolio doesn't. A 60-40 U.S. only has a very low expected return. And we had some really insightful questions on Twitter the other day we can talk about in a minute about that. But But in general, people only wanted to think in terms of should I be in or out? And I said, look, let's say... Let's say even if it was a binary choice, you want to be in or out of U.S. stocks. I said, you know, sell a quarter of it, sell a third or, or dollar cost average in. It doesn't have to be something where you're either in or out. But if we were to, you know, to boil it down to the top three, it's really about finding the portfolio that's right for you, which is in, its, in and of itself a hard challenge. If you remember back to the Bernstein podcast, he's like, I estimate 99.9% of people can't manage money on their own. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people that even once you know your risk tolerance, you know, that requires one, a knowledge of history to, to understand what markets have done. I mean, if you were to tell most people listen on this podcast that U.S. stocks have declined 80 plus percent before NASDAQ declined, I think, 85 percent in the 2000 bear market, they would would find that to be surprising. You know, that that's a way more risk than they would expect. And two, it's hard to tell someone the risk that hasn't been through it, that hasn't experienced a 50% down move or 80, 90%. So there's disconnect, you know, a, a education gap, experience gap for the younger people or people just haven't been through it. So, but eventually the goal is to try to find something that's right for you. Sub corollary would be take less risk than more. So if you think you're, here's your level of what you want, add some cash. Because I guarantee you no one ever will go down their grave and say, man, I just, if I only I had that 7% return instead of six, but living through that massive drawdown to get to the extra return, you know, the, the path to get there is really hard for most people. And so just coming up with something simple and then starting small, like you don't have to go all in if you're, if you're in or out anyway. Yeah. I like that. The idea of scaling in seems like it could help a lot from uh, the emotional side of it. Yeah. So anyway, we'll, we'll we'll come up with three ideas, and that'll be the next radio show. Top three <laughs> suggestions for a allocation, but you know, there's a lot of other things. I mean, I think a lot of people, if you were to probably poll the average wealth and you know investment um, size of the listeners of this podcast or the people I talk to, if you have something like thirty thousand dollars, you're in the world's top one percent. If you have $30,000 your name, you're a one percenter. So almost everyone listening to this podcast, almost everyone that I talk to, but it's always interesting to talk to people. And in the US, I think that number is up around 700 grand, 800 grand. Let's call it a million. Let's round up. If you're, if you're a millionaire, you're in top 1%. But we also saw a study that's like, they would ask people what money would it take for them to be happy? And regardless of asset size, it was like triple. So <laughs> I talked to everyone on the podcast I and mean, on the calls it didn't matter if they had $10,000, a million, some people had a hundred million to their name, advisors managing billions, people, family offices, these huge one sovereign wealth fund, everything in between. And it's interesting, the perspectives, because they all have very similar concerns. And it's just in general, what, what should I do with my money? Mm -hmm. How should I invest? And, and, and the takeaway is there's a lot of great ways to do it. There's a lot of really, really, really terrible ways to do it. Could probably talk about cryptocurrencies here. <laughs> I just I just got... One of my favorite books, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. If you're a listener and you haven't read that book, I encourage you to go read it. You should also read our Bubbles paper. Uh, what's it called? What if... Sir Isaac Newton was a trend follower. What if Isaac, yeah, was a trend follower. And it's a history of some bubbles. And it's really interesting because so many of these uh, initial coin offerings and cryptocurrencies, 
it, there's so many similarities to historic bubbles right now. A lot of uh, it, it, go read our old white paper, and there was this great, great event. I can't remember what, it was, but this guy was doing these essentially like these initial public offerings where people would invest. And back then, like you didn't even know what the venture was going to be, and I can't remember the quote. It's like, and it's like for a venture to be described later. So people were investing all this money and they have no idea what they're investing in. And you see this now with so many of these, these initial coin offerings, people literally have zero idea what they're investing in. And, and you start to see stuff like this. There's a website called what if Bitcoin. And the only thing the website is you type in how much money, if you had invested a hundred dollars in 2015, what would it be worth today? Oh, so it is a giant just, uh, and then Bill Winterberg had tweeted this, it's a giant fear of missing out machine, which is what fuels bubbles. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Jeff at lunch today about a cryptocurrency that had gone up 10,000% or no, something. 18,000%. Right. And yeah. so that's what gets people starting to drool. But if you were to ask me, I'd say, look, man, you should probably get a lot more interested in early stage micro cap or angel investing because you have the same orders of magnitude possible returns. We're doing one upcoming with a famous venture invest, uh, angel coming up soon. At least those companies have potential to generate cash flows in my mind. So you guys understand my my perspective on the on the crypto world. I I previously was presently amused. Now I'm viewing it more and more as a giant dumpster fire for investors to lose a boatload of money. But so not a lot of cryptocurrency conversations, but I had a few. All right. Let me uh, back up really quick. I didn't want to interrupt your, uh, your train of thought a moment ago, but I'm curious. You were talking about how the global portfolio is your starting point for anything. And I kind of questioned why. And you said, well, it's a great portfolio. I don't know if you have the numbers in front of you, but how does the global portfolio do on a return basis, a long-term return basis compared to like the S&P? Great. So if you read our global asset allocation book, it will show you, we got a chapter on the global market portfolio. And by the way, the reason I say it's the default is because it's literally the default. It is the global market cap. If you were to buy the world, it's, that's what it is. It's in line with almost every other asset allocation portfolio in the book which is, you know, does 9 or 10% a year historically back to the 70s or whenever we started the, the uh, study and like 5 or 6% real. So inline, low volatility, it's like 10% return, 10% volatility, you know, 20 or 30% drawdown or something nominal. And then real is a little bit different. So it's, it's right in the middle of everything. So it's perfectly, wonderfully average. So weird. I mean, in so many ways, it seems like investing is not that challenging. We just overcomplicate yes. it so much uh, by trying to find the various tilts and whatnot that are going to add a little bit of alpha when all you really have to do is go out and buy the global portfolio and hold long enough and keep your expenses low. And um, we, we we have this portfolio. It's the only ETF that doesn't charge a management fee. We don't talk hardly ever on this podcast about funds or strategies or you know offerings, but you know there's a number of these low-cost ETFs that exist. And we talked about it in a blog post a while back. We said there's something like four, probably now about six of these asset allocation ETFs that are under 0.3% all in, mm-hmm. and each of them owns 20,000 securities around the world, and they're all good choices. And I can't remember who runs the rest. I think it's BlackRock or State Street. Under 30 basis points. And there's something like collectively two or three billion in them. But there's something like 700 mutual funds that charge more than that, many one, two, even 3%, and they manage almost a trillion. So that if you're going to do buy and hold low cost 
investing global market portfolio, you should pay as little as possible because by definition, you're not doing anything. Yeah. You're just buying the world. And so that's a generational change. And I don't know when you may see the block blockbuster Netflix moment, you know, where all of a sudden, like you, you're seeing these everyday articles about flows, flows in the low cost, flows in the passive. But you have, I mean, that's a perfect example. And even this year, there's been more mutual funds launched than ETFs. I, I think a lot of people don't touch on some of these, you know, they say, oh, ETFs, passive, all this stuff. And and active management's, you know, hitting near all-time highs in AUM. So all this stuff, it it will be a generational change. And I think to myself, I said, I wonder what would be the next, what would be the the blockbuster moment? And I don't know what it is, but because I think a lot of these high fee funds are just stuck in brokerage accounts where people forgot about them, they're dead, you know, and, and it's gonna take 10, 20 years to to Wash well, it out. No, I mean, it, it could be the generational wealth transfer that's happening now and it could happen over the next decade. You know, as you get these 75, 80 year olds, uh, 85, 90 year olds who are going to uh, pass on their portfolios to their kids, I would hope or think that there would be some level of further analysis of the actual investments. And if, you know, the people who are inheriting these are seeing they're getting charged, you know, 125 bips versus what they could be in for 25 bips. You know, especially with the it's, step, it's something especially like, with a stepped up cost basis, it's not as prohibitive to liquidate and then move into something else now. It's something like one in five people that inherit or result of divorce um, get an account from their parents or husband, wife. One in five stay with the advisor. Is so that, almost everyone leaves. But so just just as I would hope for any rationality on the younger generation caring about low cost, you know, you see Robinhood, uh, you know, these these no transaction fee brokerage account, which is now valued at over a billion dollars, you know, tons of investors using that say, great, people care about cost. And then you realize that something like 90% of Robinhood's clients bought Snapchat on the day it IPO'd. So, so, so they're not, they, they learned some lessons, but not the right ones, you know, so they're low cost, you know, just throwing all their money into a, a fireplace. Yeah, but we talked about this earlier where they didn't get picked up by the S and P. So, uh, it's just another further yeah, slap to them. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Yeah. So what else you got? All right, well, have we exhausted the majority of the, uh, topics, which were you know, brought to you on these phone calls? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of conversations like, okay, Meb, what, what, what do you see in the world? Where do you see the opportunities? And I'd say, you know, look, it, the thesis we've had for the past four or five years has been consistent. It has been, the U.S. is one of the more expensive markets in the world, and foreign is much cheaper. Some parts of it are incredibly cheap. And you really started to see that message come to life, which has been kind of nice. So we went through the pain of 2014, which was, Foreign uh, stock markets were bottoming. And since then, 2015, 2016, 2017 in particular, a lot of these markets have have really started to get the momentum. And so even though the U.S. is still bull market hitting new highs, one of the longest bull markets we've ever seen, it's seeded leadership and performance to the foreign markets. So I get, I get a little pat on the back. I'm excited about that to see last year it was Russia and Brazil. This year it's almost everything, a lot of Europe, a lot of emerging Europe. A lot of countries are having monster years in, in their stocks. And so you have this global uptrend in equity markets, right? Commodities are, are a mixed bag. You have, uh, you know, real estate as far as REITs are a mixed bag. They're at super low yields though they've had pretty good. They've been one of the best performing asset classes since the bottom. Bonds, you've seen our thesis of looking for value in sovereign bonds to be working out great. 
So a lot of this is kind of the world looks much more like it should to us over the past few years, which is good. But usually that's when it starts to surprise you again. <laughs> so let's let's dig into U.S. equities for a second. Um, you know, a term I've heard thrown around recently is the melt up. And obviously, we're overvalued, as I've heard you say many times, doesn't mean we're going to suffer any sort of massive drawdown tomorrow. Uh, but if you're playing this as a, you know, a numbers guy, odds are not good that we're going to continue at these levels for an extended period. You don't know, but it would seem to suppose that. So, but given this whole melt-up concept, are you familiar with you know, past bull markets where we've been at a, an approximate stage here? Where you can sort of say, all right, well, you know, this might be another six months of explosions, and we, uh, you know, any investors who get in now can take care of it. And I mean, it's in a sense a market timing question, which you can never answer. Well, but- let me, I would love one day to have, there's a handful of people I'd love to have on this podcast and ask them this question. And you can use any valuation metric. So if you looked at all the valuation metrics in the US stocks, they all say they're expensive. There's not a single one I can find that says stocks are cheap. Okay. And, it's varying degrees. So some metrics like the median stock and the S&P 500, so the, the middle, you know, the price to sales or cash flow or earnings ratios, those are all at all-time highs. Not, you know, top decile, all-time, higher than 2000. Other metrics that we look at, we talk a lot about 10-year price earnings, price earnings ratio, so CAPE ratio. It's not anywhere near bubble all-time highs, which was 45 uh, or 48, I think, it hit March. Of 09, um, excuse me, December 1999. Um, Wait, where are we now? 30? We're 30-ish. Yeah, a little over 30. So it's high, but it's not horrific. It's been as low as 5, as high as 45. It's been as high as almost 100 in Japan. So if Elon Musk is, starts his boring company and finds, you know, kryptonite under the crust of the Earth's surface and, you know, causes this rally to go from 30 to 50 or 100... Like that's possible. That's been seen before. But here's here's the challenge. So, two ways you can approach, a couple of different ways you can approach um, equity markets, and one in particular. But so I asked this question on Twitter. I said three part question. Part one: Do you own U.S. stocks currently? So at a valuation of thirty, Cape ninety percent said yes. Okay. So we forecast U.S. stock returns to be low single digits, not negative, better than bonds, but certainly nowhere near foreign stock returns or other asset class. Two, I said, would you continue to own U.S. stocks if they hit a CAPE ratio of 50, which is the highest they've ever been in 140 years that we have data? And it was like two-thirds said, yes, they would continue to own stocks at a point of which no person with common sense wouldn't, there's no objectable evidence that that investment would have a positive return. So in history, in our global database, we're looking at every market that's hit 50. So China and India were in the 40s and 60s, I think in the mid-2000s. Japan, US, there's a handful of others, right? The, the, once you hit 30 is like a yellow flashing light, like it's times are going to be pretty meh. Mm-hmm. 40 is your returns are going to be negative. And anything above that, it just gets worse. And so the third quiz was, if CAPE ratio hit a value of 100, would you continue to own U.S. stocks? And, and I think it was like a third said yes. And the funny thing is, is if you frame this a different way, and here's how to put it in good perspective for people. Take your house down the street. Say, you know, it's worth 500 grand. And, and that's a reasonable ratio and metric based on uh, square footage and price. And like, like a bunch of the metrics you could come up with. It's mm-hmm. any person would think would be reasonable. 
say it's 500 grand say all right would you pay a million dollars for this house like zero people would say yes you know and then would you pay two million dollars for this house you know and so people for some reason take a different approach to investing i mean you're investing in businesses at the end of the day and people take a very strange approach when it comes to investing in businesses that happen to be listed on a stock exchange and so the, the question i'd love to ask you know bogle or some other you know really awesome market participants is is there a point in which you would say this is too much all right well i'm going to stop you and i'm going to ask that question of you let me back up here we're at a cape of 30 right now um given what you know about um the upward momentum in the u.s market right now given what you know about historical valuations and where they often start going south at what cape level are you going to bail on u.s equities before they turn south you're just going to get out because you think it's too high two comments or maybe like five. I always, I always come up with a number with them when I have response. I'm like three things. And I haven't even <laughs> thought of the three things yet. I just have to find a way to get Stop three things. Stop waffling and a let me things. just, you know. So I have an investment approach. I've very well uh, talked about, disclosed that I put all of my investable public assets into Cambridge strategies and portfolios. So for me, I have, you know, it averages out to like a Trinity three or four. So right in the middle. And a Trinity three or four means I have roughly half in buy and hold and half in trend following. Remember, the buy and hold side tilts towards value. So any of the global funds are going to tilt away or not own the U.S. at all. And not only that, those funds start to move to cash if nothing is cheap in the world. But remember, the good news is there's a lot of cheap stuff and a lot of really cheap stuff. Cheap bucket has a CAPE ratio of around 11 right now, which is a third the U.S., and the average country, I think, is around 20 or, or 22, maybe. But foreign developed and emerging are cheaper. So the really cheap stuff is, is way cheap. And then the other half of the bucket is trend following, of which you know some is managed futures, some hedges based on value and moment and trend. So the strategies that take macro value into account own zero or are hedged. So they hedge out the, the value part. Uh, with the last part being price based only, that owns U.S. stocks, but it won't as soon as they turn over. My point is I have systems to get rid of the U.S. equities if and when they need to be, a lot of which are value-oriented. All right, let me stop you there then. Just patronize me. We have a lot of listeners out there who are probably long U.S. equities without the various tilts and trend-following um, overlays and whatnot. Let's assume UMEB were carrying just a basket of long U.S. equities. At what cape level would you get scared and sketched out and you would just go ahead and sell? Let's say that I'm a investor that has all my money in U.S. stocks and I'm a stock guy. Yep. You know, I invest in stocks based on the nonsensical dividend approach. And that's what I do. Going back to our earlier conversation of behavioral issues, I think it would be irresponsible to tell everyone that they should think in binary terms after not after just saying not to so um however i think you like here's a reasonable totally reasonable approach be like look i'm gonna invest in u.s stocks but if they hit a certain value i'm gonna cut it to 50 percent mm -hmm. if they hit another value i'm gonna cut it 25 percent but you know so that i can avoid my fomo or hindsight regret so if they hit 40 like some and you can even do it in buckets you say if they hit 30 I'm going to go down to 75%. It's 40 or 50. I'm going to go down to 50. And maybe that's the lowest you ever go. 
you know, if, if that's the way you think. And they go to 100 or 80, you know, I'm going to go down to 20%. Yeah. And that's a reasonable, like, that's just a common sense checkbox. Anyway, but that also implies a world we live in right now where there's so many, I, I, it's so funny to hear the media say, and a lot of portfolio managers, they're like, you know, the, we live in a world where there's no other choices. Like U.S. stocks or bonds, usually one isn't in a bubble, but they both look terrible now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Every foreign stock market in the world, half of them are really, really, really cheap. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's better choices. Anyway, I met someone recently and uh, she had told me how she's putting or she had just gotten uh, professional help from a broker that she was really excited about. And uh, her money was finally saved up and she's really pumped about a portfolio. And when she found out that I was, you know, somewhat involved in the business, she goes, oh, well, let me show you what I have. What do you this think? Sound, this sounds like a date, by the way. <laughs> Shouldn't come up on a first date, Jeff. Um, so... She showed me what they had don't, put Don't worry, in. we have no female listeners to this podcast. If my <laughs> if my Twitter analytics are evidence of this podcast, we are ninety percent men. The other the other ten percent are robots. <laughs> yeah, we got to work on that. By yeah. the way, uh, anyway, so she showed me what they had put her in, and she, right now she's holding forty percent U.S. equities. Mm-hmm. And you know, my and she said, I, "This is great, isn't it?" And my, what's the other sixty percent? Uh, I think she was twenty percent equities. Twenty percent foreign equities. No, um, no, almost no default advisor or allocation ever gets the equity percentages in my mind right. Well, I mean, I'm, I I agree, but my point on the she was all excited about uh, how the portfolio had done as well, and I sure. said, well, you have to keep in mind that we're in a you know pretty intense bull market and a rising tide, um, rising or uh, whatever lifts all ships or whatever. And she didn't really understand what that meant. But my point was, look, the returns at this level, you got to look more globally. Stock. Right <laughs> Sounds like now. Jeff went out with a 22-year-old and is using analogies from the 1980s. That, <laughs> do you remember family ties? <laughs> do you think it's reasonable that a professional money manager would have put her right now? She started this portfolio within the last year. 40% U.S. equities. Yeah, it could be. I mean, it depends on what the other 60% is. I mean, it could be like if it's 40% U.S. and 20% foreign and 50% bonds or 40% do that, do that bonds. Math again. <laughs> I mean, like it, it, it could be reasonable because, you know, it, it depends if it's if you're saying, look, this is a 50 year time horizon and, you know, I, I 40% equities could be fine. You know, I, I just it's not what I would do, but but it's not even I mean, But again, like, I mean, again, U.S. is not. Let me also add, in addition to Trinity, you know, I have 10% of my portfolio on tail risk strategies focused on the U.S. stock market. So, you know, that that goes a lot to say that, I mean, that is a, I probably, there's not a single listener on this podcast that has that much or any professional advisor I know that, that, that has that much in tail risk strategies. So that tells you a little bit about how I think about the world. What's that drag right now? Well, just, it depends. You can't, you, you can't put a cost on that. I mean, historically, we did a couple of blog posts and a white paper should be out by the time this podcast comes up that looks at tail risk strategies that pairs them with, pairs S&P 500 puts with 10-year government bonds. And it actually shocked me, but the historical returns were actually positive. So it did something like 2% a year back to the 1980s, but there's a pretty big bond bull market during that period. So I would, I think a reasonable expectation would be no return to even, you know, potentially negative, but, but, you know, we're at, I think a good starting point. I mean, it's like, it's like the lowest volatility on record right now. 
And by the way, if you if you went back eight months and said, you know, the day after the Trump election that we would then have the mo the least vol some of the least volatile equity markets ever, no one would have taken that bet. You could probably have gotten hundred to one, thousand to one on that. You know, and that's just such a great example of markets confounding almost everyone's opinion at the time. And you go back, hey, I, I'll take a little credit. You go back and uh, this is my double, this is my second backslap during this episode. You go back and read my tweets around the election. And a couple of them was like, look, you know, I hate to tell people, but, you know, these presidential election is mostly irrelevant to future returns. Well, yeah, we wrote that article about uh, the, the analogy was the mosquitoes and the mm. lions and what people were afraid of. Great article. Yeah. Um, although I say that with showing up to work today with a huge spider bite on my face. So <laughs> if I don't make it to, to September, you know that a venomous something got to me. Yeah, I mean, and I agree. Is what, what people, a lot of stuff that people worry about is not what they should be worrying about. Uh, a few moments ago, you mentioned some insightful Twitter questions when we were talking about US 6040. Did we cover that or was that a different? Um, yeah, that was it. That was the poll okay. right, I cool. gave. All right. Um, before moving on, then, uh, we've touched on a lot of the stuff from, uh, I guess, mom and pop investors who are calling you. Anything that you would find or we would find interesting from advisors who called you? Or is it mostly the same stuff? I think a lot of people are interested in some kind of the bucket of other. You know, so so a handful of the podcasts we've done with like Pierce Street and Roofstock, we had a lot of feedback. People seem to love those. Real estate's kind of my nightmare. I, I don't like anything that involves a hassle, despite y'all having heard me talk about uh, owning farmland in Kansas that burned down a year or two ago. Uh, good news is, update, I, I got an insurance check for, for it, by the way. Was this the combine fire? Yeah. Combine ran, randomly caught fire and burned down entire... It's like the highest per acre bushel yield we've ever had on the, <laughs> on the, on the farm, by the way. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it's not a particularly good, you know, super high yielding investment, but there's a lot of sentimental value. Uh, we like going out of the farm. I just got a photo of my nephew with like a six foot long rattlesnake headless, by the way. Um, anyway, so it, so anything that involves, you know, big hassle for me doesn't really fit the bill. But I, but so a lot of people want to talk about other ideas and different things. And that's really fun for me. I, I mean, I, I, I love the concept of liquid alts. I, li I like illiquid alts less except 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 for i think angel investing is a really fun interesting you know area largely um for a couple of reasons that most people don't know about and we're gonna we talked about we're gonna have jason on the podcast here soon but but a couple of the biggest reasons being it one potentially eliminates a lot of your um emotional choices because you can't sell the investment you have no choice second there's a huge huge tax advantage that we'll talk about probably in the upcoming episodes, but essentially shields your capital gains from the first $10 million. So if you hold it for five years. Mm. Um, so even if you just replicate the S&P in your angel account, there's a massive tax benefit. Lastly would be that you have the potential for these 100x investments. And so because angel investments in general, because you're under say 50 million or 20 million market cap. So if you invest in something at 10 million, it's a lot easier for something to go from 10 million to 100 to a billion, which would call unicorn. That's 100 bagger, much like your crypto. And they could even go to 10 billion, in which case is 1,000 bagger. I mean, that is a massive logarithmic increase in wealth. So even if you put in 10 grand into an angel investment at 10 million, 
right? It hits a billion, that's a million bucks. And so you could have a very, very, very low hit rate and end up with these exponential sort of outcomes. But one of the, the coolest parts about that is you get to meet a lot of super energetic, optimistic people. And it tends to be young people, you know, but building these really interesting companies and, you know, wanting to change the world. A lot just want to get rich, but, but there's a lot of things involved in, in that world that makes it hard. I would love for someone to start a research boutique on the private space. We've talked about that a lot. Mm-hmm. We may have to do that if no one else does. I don't want to, but we may have to. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that podcast with Jason. That'll be yeah, it'll be fun. And so, you know, we talked a lot about alts. And so a lot of people, that means different things. But uh, we went down many a rabbit hole. So we'll open this back up next quarter for a couple weeks if you missed it uh, to chat about other stuff as well. Cool. I'm thinking here, why don't we hit on uh, maybe a few uh, Q&A from sure, the listeners and then we'll yep. wrap it up. Yep. Correlation of market rise and breadth is an interesting relationship. Sometimes I see mentioned often, but I cannot help but think that indexation must have a not subtle effect on breadth. What are your thoughts? So but let me back up. Why don't you define everything, make sure everybody's on the same page Yeah, I mean, first. breadth is like if you look at the S&P 500, it's a lot of the traditional metrics and and indicators are such that a classic one is you know how many are up or how many are down over a time frame or on the day or above their 200-day moving average i was listening to mark yusko on adventures in finance podcast talk about the percentage of companies above the 200-day moving average is a great indicator okay and so it's basically saying you know is the market being supported by just a handful of stocks you know there's a lot of talk of the fangs mm-hmm. facebook amazon netflix google you know, lately, and it's because, particularly in the late '90s, that bull, that bull market was a small percent of the universe bubble. So it was the tech companies, but it wasn't small caps, and it wasn't dividend-paying value stocks. Right? Those companies did not have a bear market 2002, 2003 at all. Nasdaq fell 85%. Every headline was terrible. The world was coming in. Most companies did just fine. And so breadth, you know, you start to see some divergences and it's, it's kind of, you know, like this lattice work of information where a lot of times you're trying to put together different pieces and some things will give you hints sometimes and sometimes they won't. So I, I've long looked at breadth. I think it's interesting. Um, you have to take into account. You can't just look at everything exchange traded. Tom McClellan, who's been on the podcast, does a lot of good work here. Because there'll be closed-in funds, there'll be ETFs which have no bonds. There'll be so you want a pu- kind of pure universe um, and want it to be not survivor bias, all that good stuff. I've never found anything other than it being interesting and kind of coincident, but I'm sure lots of other people have. So it, it would be an indicator that I think is is could be very helpful. Luthold writes a lot about it. They they did in this current issue. If you can get access to Luthold's Green Book, it's it's like. Christmas Eve every month when it comes. I love it. It's probably my favorite publication. Well, given the specifics of this listener's questions, it seems like in addition to just questioning about breadth, he's asking about the effect of indexing on breadth. Do you find that that uh, somehow dilutes the efficacy of this or is it irrelevant? You're, you're starting to tread into my single least favorite media topic today, which is the index and passive and ETF flows. And it's often, I mean, Paul Singer just came out with one of the stupidest comments, but something like, you know, it's, it's, they're anti-capitalism. It's destroying capitalism. 
And it's what, such pa- a moron- passive is ETFs oh, and ETFs. just passive. It's so moronic and it's so ill-informed. And I'll give you a couple of reasons. One, I mean, his, his argument, I think, is a little more that by indexing, you're removing um, a lot of the traditional active involvement to vote on issues and boards and shareholder activism. But the thing about markets is if a stock gets too far away from its intrinsic value, someone will come in and do something, yeah. you know, so he will come in and do something. He'll get 10 of his friends. If a st- I guarantee you, if a stock gets too cheap, Warren Buffett will buy it. You know, there is no question that. But so, so there's a couple things. Isn't that the question though? Is is as indexing rises as much, does that basically take away the opportunity for single stock investors to you know, no, I guess that, correct those that imbalances? Makes, that makes no sense. On top of that, I mean, a lot of these active managers are complaining because they've been underperforming the market for a long time. And and again, the whole active passive thing to me is is a bit of a nonsensical debate, but meaning people that are trying to beat the market have struggled and they're pissed off because a lot of because vanguard is destroying them which is awesome because these people charge way too much for doing very little so i would think you would but but again going back to the active funds hitting all-time highs in aum and, and having more fund launches than etfs mutual funds are still 5x etf assets 5x not equal you would, if you listen to the media you would think that etfs are like 100 times the size of mutual funds Mutual funds are five times as big as ETFs. Mutual funds are two-thirds active. So this whole passive is eating the world thing, which is a good thing, is, is silly. If you look at institutional ownership of ETFs across pension funds, across asset managers, advise, it's like one, 1% of their funds are in ETFs. Some, it's less than 1%. And then I tweeted that out about a year ago. And, and, but at some point, I just I give up. And I just, it's, I, I just can't take it. I just I can't, even, can't even engage. You get so um, annoyed by this. It's because it's just such bad homework. It's like you're not even, it, it's people writing about something and not even putting any thought into it whatsoever. It, what was the quote? It was, the general idea was it's not about active or passive. It all boils down to fees. It's, well, you're totally mangling a Bogle quote, but it's close. No, no, I said, don't think it was Bogle. It's it Bogle. Was, and it said the conflict of the industry, conflict of interest in the industry is not active versus passive. It's high cost versus low cost. All right. Well, I just said it better. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> New attribution, Jeff Rimsberg. There you go. August All right. 2017. Did I cut you off on this one? Is there more you want to say on it? No, I, I didn't want to say anything on it, but <laughs> I couldn't help myself. All right. Next question. I will preface this by saying uh, if you guys are interested in this following topic, listen to our podcast with Dave Nadig. Um, I think he covered this in more detail. But the question is, I'd like to hear what uh, you and Mev have to say about the ETF bubble. Um, he's worried about uh, downside liquidity during sell-offs, misallocation of capital to low ROIC companies, and yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's, it's kind of a tangential to the last question, yep. namely that ETFs are, ETFs are just a wrapper. So people talk about stuff. They're like, oh, back during this last liquidity event or flash crash. No, that was stock-driven. And we talked about that with Nadig. Stocks were the issue, not ETFs. So ETFs are there's no ETFs are the same, pretty much the same exact thing as mutual funds, closed-in funds, all these other wrappers. And that's all that it is. Mutual funds, the difference is they do it once a day. If they traded throughout the day, they'd look exactly like ETFs. Closed-in funds have no tie to net asset value, so they can trade around it. But they're all just wrappers and they own. And it really doesn't matter 
The only exception is if you have a tiny asset class and a ton of money floating in, and even we talked, we just talked about this with uh, Emil Van Essen on commodities, where you put enough money to something, it will move the asset class. So if you have, you know, some tiny sub asset class like social media micro cap stocks, and you decide to do an ETF on that, they would never get approved. But if you did, then you put a hundred billion dollars in it, it's going to affect the stocks. But for the vast majority of the world, it works great. And there's some areas like corporate bonds that probably shouldn't be like like we would love to do a catastrophe bond fund, you know, on, the, on these reinsurers that insure risk for hurricanes and earthquakes because it correlates to nothing. You get a decent yield. They've been pushed to kind of lower yields now, but historically it's been a great asset class. You can't do that as an ETF. It's a terrible idea. People, some people do it as mutual funds, but I think they have longer lockup. It could be a closed-in fund, but but there's some there's some assets that just makes no sense to put it into an ETF structure. So other than a tiny few areas, it's a totally fine structure. All right, so sleep well. Third question, let's call it a day. It actually kind of ties into what we were discussing earlier in terms of uh, market levels, valuation levels. Uh, with stretch valuations in the U.S. equity markets, is there any valuation level that the buyback component of the shareholder yield ratio could actually create a headwind for the strategy? You know, I just listened to um, Patrick's Invest with the Best podcast with Thorndike, who wrote the book, The Outsiders. One of my favorite books, Buffett recommended it. If you haven't read it, go pick up a copy. And he talks a lot about dividends and buybacks and, and finding CEOs that you know, are, are good capital allocators. And he says that, you know, the sexy part of a business and what everyone focuses 99% of the time on is operations. And, you know, what's this company doing? What products is it producing? Yada, yada. But really, he said a lot of, a lot of the value is driven by a capital allocation. Some of the best CEOs, when their stock was expensive, you know, they would be net sellers and acquiring other companies for stock. And then when their stock was cheap, they would be um, buying it back, etc. So you'd like to see people that are agnostic. Now, so there's kind of two challenges. One is that, and we just saw finally a competitor finally come in and, la and is launching another, I think it's BlackRock, launching a shareholder yield style fund, which I'm pretty sure doesn't include valuation. So any of these ways of doing dividends or buybacks or the correct way, which is both, if you ignore valuation, I think it is very foolish. Because it doesn't matter if you're buying a, a stock that's buying back stock, a company that's buying back stock or a company that's paying high dividends. If that stock's expensive, it's a stupid idea. It doesn't matter if they're distributing cash flow. Like you want to be buying cheap first, you know, then doing correct investment decisions. And the only way in my mind, you know, that we try to do it is, is through objective measures. Now, if you're talking about the stock market as a whole, you know, you tend to see a general trend of buybacks that ebb and flow at the market cycle. You know, you see more in 007 than you do in 08 or 09. And then it kind of comes back up and you see a lot more buybacks over the last few years. That's on aggregate, though. And you really don't care about on aggregate what the distributions are. Because remember, buybacks are the same as dividends over time, excluding taxes. So it's not something I sweat. There's two separate questions. Is the market overvalued? And then if you're picking stocks in the stock market, are you picking cheap ones? Well, to what degree is the answer to this question not far simpler is just anything above intrinsic value is overpaying. Right. So you don't want this U.S. stock market in general in the first place. So you can apply shareholder yield to foreign developed and emerging, and it works great. It has been working great. But it's probably the value lever that's working more. And, you know, that's we always say the big muscle movement is value. 
rather than, and we've done enough ad nauseum on this on, on dividends. The way to think about it, U.S. stock market is going to return less than normal. Let's call it 3% maybe. Who knows? 4%, 5% if you're an optimist. We did a great post the other day that I forgot about this. I was looking at my Twitter feed and it had like Bogle, Schiller, GMO, and um, like Hussman and some other just famous investors. We had the historical rate of return on the stock market, 6.7% real. So round that up to 9 or 10 um, nominal. But 6.7% real, every single one of them was below. <laughs> you know, but what do investors expect? They, they, through all the surveys, they expect 10% plus return. So misalignment. So you just have lower expectations. And then you can say, hey, look, if we're buying the cheap stocks within that stock market, add a percent or two or whatever. Being optim- I'm being cautious here, but adding a few percent above the market return. So you'll still hopefully beat the market because you're buying the cheap stuff, but uh, but that market may not be giving you the opportunities. Not enough breadth. That's why you want to look globally. There you go. All right, we're sitting at an hour. Anything else that you want to chat about before we wrap up? Lots, but um, we'll we'll hold off for another uh, radio show. And, and listeners, the more questions you send in to Jeff, the more chance you have for us doing a lot more radio shows. We may do these once a week because we have so many guests lined up over the next two months that are awesome. We kind of have to either add them as supplements or boot some of the guests down the line. And there's so many people we want to talk to. I really don't want to uh, boot them. So send, send questions to Jeff feedback at the medfabershow.com. I think we've crossed 200 reviews. Finally, have we? Good. I don't know. I saw it at like 197 a couple weeks ago and I haven't looked since, so I hope so. We're um, we're over 1.5 million total downloads, which is uh, another little milestone. So that means of the 1.5 million downloads, about (laughs) 0.0001% of you have left a review. So Jeff and I put a lot of work and sweat. I'm particularly sweat. We, the radio room doesn't have air conditioning somehow. And so it's like 105 degrees in here. Um, anyway, we put a lot of effort. We would love to see your reviews. We love reading them. They're a lot of fun. Uh, more fun than my first book, the new book review that got taken down by Amazon. That was great. So good. <laughs> Sorry you guys missed it. But the guy was complaining about the price of the book at $15. No, no, he's complaining about the price of the book at $25, even though the Kindle is 15 not having read the book, not having ordered it. And then he said, greet anyone, which is even funnier because all the proceeds go to charity. So <laughs> anyway, send us an email, feedback on the medfavorite.show.com. Please leave us a review. We love reading them. You can always find the episodes, show notes, yada, yada, at medfavorite.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 